Well, on the side screen, you'll see a picture come up. You may date yourself if you can identify who that is. And uh, while you're thinking about that, let me introduce myself. My name's Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And a special welcome to our Harbor Online community. If you're watching now live, welcome. If you're watching at a later time, welcome to you as well. And then let me do uh, two quick things here. Where is Josh? There he is. Josh's uh, wife Stacy is pregnant with their third child, and Josh is beginning a, a paternity leave, three-month paternity leave on Tuesday. So if you have a chance to see Josh today, wish him well and bless him as he goes into that time. Love that you're doing that, Josh, uh, spending time with family. Rumor has it he's still going to be around here volunteering on Sunday, singing on the stage, so you may see him on Sun Sundays. But behind the scenes doing all the organizing is Joel Dick. Joel, Joel, wave your hand. You're already doing that back there. So Joel's joined our staff for the last three months. So uh, there's my uh, quick little update there. Anybody know who that is? Okay, Evil Knievel. We had a little uh, conversation in our family about that yesterday, and uh, he was not well-known. He was not well-known, so you may date yourself. His, his actual name, he's called Evil Knievel, his actual name, and you'll appreciate it. I did a lot of research on this, teachers. I went to Wikipedia and did uh, quite a lot of research, but his actual name was Robert Knievel. He was a daredevil and a stuntman, and then early on in his career, he was arrested and put in jail, and in the cell next to him was another criminal, and his name was Arthur Knopfel. But they didn't call him Arthur Knopfel, they called him Awful Knopfel. And so Robert thought, oh, I sort of like these rhyming nicknames. And so while he was in prison, he came up with the name Evil Knievel. And that's how we know him today. Probably one of the best uses of the word evil. He spelled it E-V-E-L. Uh, we spell it E-V-I-L. I uh, think of evil, you know, we have the evil eye. Maybe in movies you have an evil genius. But generally, here's what the word evil means. Profoundly immoral and wicked. Not just a little immoral and wicked, but profoundly immoral and wicked. It's not really a word we use very much. We, we don't tend to say they did evil. And Liz, I appreciated your description of kids at camp, right? Some had big personalities. She did not say some children did evil this week. Maybe they felt that way. No, no. But it's just not a word we use, right? You shouldn't, call, you shouldn't say that at work or at school or in the neighborhood. It's just not a word we use much. But we come to a story today where God says in his word, this person did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so we have God stepping in saying this person was profoundly immoral and wicked. And that's where we come today. Let me just tell you how we're getting here. We're in a series over the summer through the kings of Judah. You'll see a little chart come up that sort of gives you the time period in the Old Testament of the kings. We're talking about the divided kingdom and the single kingdom where we are today, all the kings of Judah. Each week we're looking at a different king and each king leaves a legacy. They're all different legacies, and we're not necessarily looking at all the kings in chronological order, but what they're all known for is they're known for something. And today we come to a king, and what he is known for is being the most evil king 
that Judah ever had. He wins the prize up until that day, and many would say from there on, he was the most evil king that ever existed in the nation of Judah. And so that's the story we're going to look at today. Let me introduce them to you. I hope you've got your Bibles to turn them on, to open them up, to follow along. Uh, this is a story you may not be familiar with. If you're new to church today, probably if you're with someone who's been in church a long time, they may not know this story either. So we're all sort of on equal ground learning about this king. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33, so if you're trying to find it in your paper Bible, go to Psalms, which is in the middle, move back towards the beginning, and you'll get to chapter 33. Uh, there's one verse you're really going to want to highlight here, but the verses are on the side screens as well. So let me introduce you to our main character. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So our main character, his name is Manasseh. We learn a couple of things about him. He became king when he was 12, and he's not only the most evil king, he is the longest reigning king, 55 years. So he's king from he's 12 years old till when he is 67 years old. And then you saw the description there, right? What did it say? What does the word of God record? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I know sort of the natural question here, and this is what we're going to come to, uh, is what does that actually mean? What did he do? What does that evil look like? You know, it's not a word. It's not a category we use. And that's what we're going to see play out next in the story. I've just titled it, A Picture of Unparalleled Evil. So that's what we're going to look at, a picture of unparalleled evil. But as we sort of move through the text, here's the thing to remember. This may surprise you. As you're thinking what he did, what was so evil about this king, you may be surprised or potentially you could be offended. But this description of evil here, but here's what I've got this morning, right? I've got Manasseh, he's evil, and now I've got a picture for us all to see this picture of unparalleled evil Four ideas there. Just look down to verse 3 through verse 5, and we see the first one. Here's how it reads. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, to which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. So what, what I see there, and I underlined it on the screens, was really some active words that, that are being used to describe this king. He's active, he's rebuilding, he's erecting altars, he built altars. You see that four times in there. Fascinating. We're going to talk about Hezekiah in a future week. His father had torn down a bunch of altars, and he comes along and rebuilds them all. So these are active words. He is not passive. In his evil, he is active in it. But did you see the two fascinating words? What, what was he doing? He was bowing down and worshiping. Isn't that interesting? He's bowing down and worshiping. That's the first description we get of the most evil king. And probably when we started and I said this king did evil, you probably did not think, oh, he was someone who worshiped and bowed down. But that's what we record here. And, and here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting, and here's what we would learn, is he was active. Here's my principle. Active 
in religious practices. The evil of Manasseh was that he was so active in worshiping and bowing down false gods. And here's what I just want to highlight as we begin. And here's what we can take away from this. Not all religious activity is on the same level. Not all religious activity is good. In our day and age, we would tend to say, oh, if someone's worshiping, bowing down, that's going to end positively. But here we read in the story, it's not the case. It's not the case that some religious activity, some religious activity in this day and in our day could be categorized as evil. I've had the opportunity over the last two or three months to meet someone who's brand new to Jesus from a different country. He's come here, didn't really know anything about Jesus. And as we've gotten to know each other, he's really said how much he likes Jesus. You know, and again, you open up the New Testament, you read the New Testament, Jesus is a very compelling figure. And so when we were together one time, I said to him, can I just tell you one of the most offensive things Jesus said, one of the most controversial things, one of the things that actually ended up him getting killed. And so he was intrigued because he thought, how could anyone not like Jesus? He's so likable. And so then we went to John 14, 6 in the Bible, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. And as we processed that, and as he came to understand it, he said, yeah, that, I see what you're saying. That is offensive. That is controversial, what Jesus would say there. And, and just so we understand, here's what Jesus is saying. The only way to God is through me. I'm the way. I am truth. I am where you find life. And so therefore, if that's what Jesus is saying, that's what the Bible is teaching, any road that leads us away from that ultimate good, that leads us on another way, that leads us down another road of falsity, not truth, that leads us to death, both now and eternal, would be evil. And that's what we're marked in this story today, that there are, to be active in religious practices, there are some that are evil. And that is as true then, to back then in Manasseh's day, as it is in our day today. Now let's go down to verse 6. You're going to see a second evil here, and you're going to see a lot more religious practices. But we get to a, a second one here. I could pull out many, but we'll just read the verse and I'll pull out one. He sacrificed his children in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spirits. So I could have put that up with the other one. You know, just all sorts of ongoing evil religious practices. But I just want to highlight the first one. You know, it, it's the most unbelievable to agree that sort of makes us wince. Did you see it right there at the beginning? He sacrificed his children in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. He's bringing, Kings tells us, at least his son, maybe other children, maybe other people in Israel were bringing their children to this valley, putting them into a fire as a way to gain favor with God. We typically think, if you're familiar with the Bible, is this is of a pagan practice. This is what people did that were far from God. But now we have the nation of Israel led by their king sacrificing their children. Just a little aside here for those of you that are interested, the Valley of Ben-Hinnon is where this is happening. That valley is home throughout the Old Testament to some of the most revolting pagan practices that happen in the nation of Israel. Josiah the king kicks out or gets rid of those pagan practices and it becomes a garbage dump. 
where the fire still burned, and they burned the fires, or they burned the garbage from Jerusalem, and they also threw bodies of ex uh, executed criminals into this garbage dump. So it was a place of perpetual fires, dreadful sights and smells. This existed to the day when Jesus came. And Jesus picks up on this imagery in the New Testament of this valley where Manasseh was sacrificing his children. In the New Testament, Jesus calls it Gehenna. And he uses it as a symbol of hell itself to symbolize what hell is. So that's a little aside and how Manasseh's evil even transcends to that symbol in the New Testament. But here's the second idea. Here's the evil of Manasseh. I was said it this way on the child sacrifice. He devalued the sanctity of life. He devalued the sanctity of human life. And here's what we learn. Anywhere where there's evil, anywhere where a culture is moving away from God, human life is devalued. Lenin, Stalin, Nazi Germany, Cambodia, and the Khmer Rouge, the list goes on of atheist regimes where there has been a huge devaluing of human life. And what we remind ourselves today of the great truth that starts in Genesis, where God says every life is precious. Every life is made in my image. So no matter the race, no matter someone's ethnicity, no matter their economics, no matter their language, every life is precious. Every life is precious from the moment of conception till natural death. That as we move towards God, we have this value of the sanctity and the preciousness of human life. And we see the evilness of Manasseh moving in exactly the opposite direction. That's the second picture of unparalleled evil. Look down to verse 7 and we'll skip a bit and do verse 9. We'll sort of do the third thing in this second summary paragraph. Let me read it for you. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Fascinating description here. If you remember back to the time of Joshua, the Canaanites were so evil. And, and God used the nation Israel to bring judgment on them. But now what we're learning is in the time of Manasseh, the people of Israel were more evil than the Canaanites. And here's the third thing we see Manasseh doing. It's not that he's just doing evil, but it's said that he led the people of Judah astray. He was influencing them. And so here's the third thing about his evilness is he influenced others into disobedience. Right? It's not just him doing it, but he is compelling an entire nation to move away from God. If you read Romans 1, we see how the sinfulness of moving away from God. And what's fascinating in Romans 1, you get down to the last verse, and the most evil, it says this, there are those who also approved of those who practiced these things. And so it's this movement away of not just doing it ourselves, but approving and endorsing as other people do it. That's the third thing. The active in religious practice, devaluing of life, the influencing of others. And now we'll go back up to verse 6. I skipped it, but we'll come back to it. Second part of verse 6. Here's the last one. He did so much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He did so much evil that he aroused the anger of God. 
Now, I know for a moment the idea that God being angry is not that popular. We probably would prefer a loving God, but in this instance here, I think if we just pause for a moment, you can probably say, I see why God's anger got stirred up. I see why God's anger got aroused. God loves the people of Israel. These are his people. He loves them dearly, and now Manasseh is leading them away from him into falsity, into awful practices, into really literal and eternal death. You can see if God loved these people, how God loves them, how his anger would be stirred up. And just think, again, this is a 55-year reign of Manasseh. Let's say he's now in year 40 of, of the reign when God's anger is getting stirred up. Maybe it's year 45. We don't know exactly, but it's later in his reign, as we'll see from the rest of the story. So this has been going on for 40 or 45 years. God's anger is beginning to get stirred up, and I think you can probably see that. Just think this morning, someone you love, someone you love, and you knew someone else did something to hurt them. Wouldn't your anger begin to stir up? Just think this morning, if someone you love, someone else was hurting them and they had been doing the same thing for 40 years, your anger would probably really be stirred up. Just, I, I was the other day, I was watching, uh, or I was watching this uh, clip from International Justice Ministry. It's a ministry that's all around the world trying to seek justice, especially for children. And this video was from about 2017, but it was a story of uh, Ghana, West Africa, where there were children ages 6 through 12 who lived in slavery and worked 18 hours a day fishing on this Lake Volta. It's like a two-minute video clip. It's really well done. And you can watch and see how these children are trapped in slavery and how this ministry, IJM, International Justice Ministries, is watching them. Now, I watched that for two minutes, and my anger was stirred up. I was getting on my iPad. Where is this Lake Volta? We just need to go over there and rescue these children. You know, it's actually quite a large lake, and so I can see why there was a problem in finding these children and rescuing them. But that took me about two minutes for my anger to get stirred up. Here we have 40 years of Manasseh's reign, and you can see of hurting people. And so I think... As you would look at this honestly today, you could say, you know, yes, God, if you love the people of Israel, I see how your anger could get stirred up in those moments. But let me just turn a little bit. I hope we're agreeing on that point, but let me just turn it a little bit and make it a little personal. Let me just make it a little personal here as you think about this. As you would think about your own life, let me ask this question. Have you ever done something that hurt someone who God loves? Have you ever done something that hurt someone who God loves? Maybe it was an act you did, or maybe it was something you didn't do. Now, I know what you're saying. I haven't been as bad as Manasseh. I haven't put any children on, on a Lake Volta in slavery. I, I agree. I agree. But is someone's life worse off because of your choices? Is someone's life worse off because of what you have done or have not done, you don't need to raise your hand, but I think we could all admit that that would be the case. That we each have done things that have stirred up the anger of God. We have done things 
No, not to the same level as Manasseh, maybe, but we have done things that have hurt other people. Now, if you wouldn't agree with that point, if you don't agree with that point, there's probably two reasons for that. One is you have too high a view of your own goodness or too low a view of God's holiness. You see, when we compare ourselves to other people, we can actually come out looking not too bad. But we start to compare ourselves to God and how great he is. We realize we have fallen far short, and we can look in humbly on our lives and say, I have done things. I have sinned against God, but I've sinned against other people and hurt them. And I can see, I can see how God would be angry now at Manasseh, but I can also see how he would be angry with me. So here's what we've got so far. We've got a man, Manasseh, a picture of unparalleled evil. Not by my standard, but by God's standard. This is what his word says. That's what we've gone through. We've looked at these four points. Now, what happens next? That's the second half of the story. And I've entitled it, God's Response to Unparalleled Evil. What is God going to do about this kind of evil? Look down to verse 10, first half of it. Here's what God does. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. So simply, what's God's first response is God speaks. Now, some of you may not have thought this was the answer. Some of you were expecting in the next verse, and God sent a lightning bolt, whap, and that's it for Manasseh, right? If anyone deserves the instant judgment of God, it would be Manasseh. But God is not acting other than in his speaking. God speaks. How did he speak to Manasseh? Well, it was probably over many years he sent people, probably the prophets, to warn Manasseh and the people. The the warning would have been something like this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. If you keep moving and pursuing evil, judgment is going to come. Now, just think about God for a moment. He's been doing that, remember, maybe for 40 years. Maybe for 45 years he's been warning them. We should just pause for a moment. I couldn't do two minutes on my YouTube video before wanting to get over there and give out justice. We call this the long-suffering of God, the great patience of God. For 40 years, potentially, 45 years, he's sending people to speak to Manasseh and the people to warn them. Romans 2 verse 4 says it this way, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. This is God's great kindness to Manasseh. It's his great long-suffering. Peter says it this way, God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is giving them lots of time. The very fact that God is speaking shows his great love and concern for Manasseh and the people. But then look at the next part of the verse. You know how this goes. We all know how this goes. Look at the next part of the verse. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. You know that, right? We all sort of live in this category. We, we, we know, okay, God, you spoke. You spoke. I know I've stirred up your anger, but yet I'm just going to keep doing what I'm going to do. I can get away with it. You know, in Manasseh's for 40 years, for 45 years, think, thinks it can happen. I don't need to say much more on this because we all sort of know this journey. So if that's God's first response, he speaks a word of warning out of his great kindness and love. Here's the second thing that God does. So the Lord, verse 11, we'll read it together. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. 
This event is actually recorded in Assyrian history. It's called the Annals of Ashurdan, where the Assyrian commanders came in. And you may wonder, oh, is that figurative language? No, by most counts, this is literal language. They actually put a ring in Manasseh's nose, would have had a rope on it, probably attached it to a soldier on a horse or a soldier walking, bound his feet in shackles, and took him to Babylon. Handy-dandy Google Maps told me that that's a 233-hour walk from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's a long walk with a hook in your nose and shackles on your legs. But here's what we learn. Here's the principle. God spoke, but the second idea is that God allowed distress to come. God allowed distress to come. And we know that sin and rebellion and evil it brings a cost. Think of the prodigal son story in the New Testament. The prodigal son, uh, he wanders away from God, or wanders away from his father, takes the inheritance, wastes and wilds living, and where does he end up? In great distress, looking at the pig food, thinking this looks pretty good. Now, let me just say a little aside here. It's important. All suffering is not necessarily caused by sin. Jesus is clear on that, but sometimes our rebellion against God, sometimes that does cause suffering and pain in our lives. Now, we know for all who are in Christ, our sin is covered. It's forgiven and gone. And so any suffering for those that are in Christ are designed to, for us to trust God more. But here we have someone who is rebelling against God, and his suffering is designed to bring him to repentance, to turn him back to God. And so today... If you're maybe watching or if you're here in the audience and God, you, are, you would say, you know, I'm, not, I'm rebelling against God and God has brought distress in your life, let me give you a piece of good news. It may not seem like good news. The good news is, is that God's still trying to get your attention. The good news is, is God is still trying to work. And you might say, well, I don't like this method, but God is using the distress to grab your attention. Here's what I would say. Beware of a time when we're living in rebellion and there is no distress. Beware of a time when we live in rebellion and God is not bringing any distress. He's just leaving us. In fact, the distress here is a signal of God's love and concern and kindness towards Manasseh. So here's what we've got so far. We've got this picture of unparalleled evil. We have God speaking. We have God bringing distress. I think the next couple of verses are some of the most unbelievable verses in the Bible. You're going to want to highlight these. You're going to want to underline them. If you were reading this through on yourself, you would not believe it's actually there. Look down to verse 12. Here's what happens. In his distress, Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And I read that verse and say, wow. What just happened here? What just happened? Manasseh, to use modern language, is turning to, to God. He's getting saved. He's becoming a Christian. Look, look at how the author describes it. It's unbelievable that the most evil king is now turned, and he's doing two things. One is he's seeking the Lord. See, he sought the favor of the Lord. He's like, God, I need you. I want to know you. And the second thing he's doing is he's humbling himself. He's saying, God, I have done wrong. He's going low to the ground. And it doesn't just say he humbled himself a little. It says he humbled himself greatly. 
great humility. Why? Because he had great sin. Great sin calls for a great response and great repentance. Just for a moment, do you see how rare this is? Do you see how rare? Really, people of Manasseh, this is one of the most unbelievable moments in all of Scripture of someone repenting because of the suddenness of it, because of the extent of it. It's remarkable. We look out today and say people that are this evil really don't repent. They really don't turn to God. But in Manasseh's case, we do. And so this should bring hope to all of us. If you know someone this morning and you think they are too far from God to ever turn back from him, just remember the story of Manasseh. It says God can work in anyone and draw them back. Now let me just make one other quick clarification. Maybe some of you are thinking, ah, you know, Jeff, if I had a hook in my nose and had to walk 233 miles, I'd cry out to God as well, right? i just cry out to God. And, you know, and, so, and, and that's a legitimate question, right? Is this true repentance or is this just false repentance, which is the idea of, hey, I'm in a mess, God, just get me out of it. Now, we'll see in the rest of the story this really is true repentance. But how even in this verse do we know it's true? Here's why we know it's true. is because when he calls out to God, he just sought the favor of God. He just said, God, I just need you. I don't want anything else but you. And oftentimes when it's false repentance, we sort of go to God and say, God, I just need you to fix this. I'm in a mess. Just please fix this up. Manasseh's not doing any of that. He's just going to God and saying, God, I just want you. No matter what happens, no matter what goes on, I just want to be in right relationship with you. And the second thing he's doing is he's humbling himself greatly. He's saying, God, I deserve the consequences of my sin. I have done harm. I have hurt other people, and I bow down greatly, and I just accept my consequences. And God, probably in his heart, I deserve for so much more than that. True repentance here. And then look at the next verse. This is how great our God is. Look at the next verse, verse 13. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entry and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Do you hear that there? All he did, all he did was he just cried out to God. He just cried out. He said, God, I humble myself. I am seeking you. And in that moment, the Lord listened and heard his plea and begins the process of restoring him back to his city and to his kingdom. And you're like, God, this is a little too aggressive here, God. Just slow down. You know, shouldn't you like uh, have a test period? Maybe put him through some trials, see if he's really sincere. But this is our God. The moment that we cry out to him. The moment we come to him, he hears us and offers us totally free, undeserved grace, total forgiveness. This is our God. Someone as evil as Manasseh, someone as evil as Manasseh, in, in this sincere heart cry of repentance, God meets him and forgives all. And maybe even today, as we've gone through this list of evil things at the beginning, maybe your heart just got heavy. You know, and as you thought about maybe something you've done or not done, and the anger of God, your heart got heavy. Here's the good news. If God will hear the cry of Manasseh, he will hear your cry. He will hear anyone's cry. He, is, he, he accepts and welcomes all 
who would truly repent. So here's my third idea. It's this. God restores the repentant. God restores the repentant. And when we come to God, not based on anything we've done, not deserving it, he just offers us his free grace his forgiveness, his mercy. We sang it earlier, his mercy is more. Here's a little quote that will help us understand this great gospel message. You'll see it come up on the screens. It reads this way. There will be people in heaven who will be worse than people in hell. Just think about that for a moment. There will be people in heaven who are worse than people in hell. People who live far Worse lives. Just think for all of us who are in Christ. One day you will meet Manasseh, maybe on the, on the new earth here, and you're going to bump into Manasseh and say, oh, hey, nice to meet you. What's your name? He'll say, oh, I was, I'm King Manasseh. You'll be like, oh, I've heard about you. Right? And you might even be start thinking, how did you get in here? Was there like a back door or something? What did you do? Did you know somebody? How does someone as evil as you, in the Old Testament known as the most evil king, how did you ever get into eternity with God? And it'd be a good question to ask him because here's what he's going to say. By the blood, by the cross of Jesus Christ. Only by the cross of Christ. And then, if he looked back at you and say. Well, how did you get in? You know what you're going to say? Only by the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're going to realize that in that moment, we have no goodness to bring to God. It is only all that he does through us, through the cross, through the blood of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, and you might realize somehow along the way today, God could be angry with you. Would you do this? Would you confess your sin? Would you repent it? Repent of it? And would you know of God's unconditional, full and free forgiveness towards you? Would you just posture that of your heart today to say, God, I know you have every right to be angry with me and to bring judgment, but oh God, I just turn to you and thank you. Thank you that I can know your forgiveness today. And that's what happens. If you just look down in the next verse, here's the great encouragement as you may make that prayer in your heart. Here's what it reads. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Then Manasseh knew. And you, so he's, he's growing in his faith. He's growing in his understanding of God. He sees the graciousness of God, and now he has new and deeper understanding of God's strength and grace working through him. So he realizes his sin through the distress he comes to God, calls out to God. God instantly responds and meets him, restores him, forgives him, and now he's beginning to say, I am growing in my knowledge and understanding of how good and gracious and awesome God is. And that's what we all experience when we are willing to humble ourselves to seek the Lord. God just meets us in those ways and we come more to know more of him. So what's God's response in this story to unparalleled evil? He speaks, he allows distress, and then he restores the repentant. And let me just quickly wrap up the rest of the story just so you know how it ends. Manasseh comes back to Jerusalem. You'll see on the side screens here he does five things. His repentance is real. He's changing. He rebuilds the outer wall of the city, and he stationed military commanders. These are signs of God's favor on the nation because he's returned to God. He got rid of the foreign gods, he restored the altar of the Lord, and he uses his influence now in the reverse way. He told Judah to serve the Lord. 
And so the land is beginning to be healed. If you look down to that last verse there, though, the people, however, continue to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So it's not perfect. It's not perfect. You know, Manasseh has led the people a long ways away, but now in the last years of his life, God is using him to bring the people back. And I think this is a great picture, that when we cry out to God, he instantly meets us. He instantly forgives us and gives us his grace. But the healing takes time. The healing takes time, just like in the life of Manasseh as we continue to obey and follow him. Let me just end with one quote that helps bring this all together for us. It's from Jerry Bridges. You'll see it on the side screens. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. But let me also add a second half to the quote, just in case, because sometimes we think, we can think, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not that bad. Let me give the second half of the quote, and this is a great reminder, just in case we want to get anywhere towards self-righteousness. Here it is. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. See how those two work together? One is we stay humble and we realize that every day in our worst, we are never beyond the grace of God. But then in our best days, we stay humble and realize that we always need the grace of God. It's his grace each and every day. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for the story of Manasseh. And God, we are just reminded of your great faithfulness of your great mercy towards us. And so, God, may you fill us with an understanding of your grace, our deep need for it each and every day. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. As you head out this week, work, school, neighborhood, activities, know that there's no one that you will encounter that is not beyond the grace of God. And so would you, would you value them? Would you look for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus? Harbor, we are sent.